Hello everyone, and welcome to Queens of the Bees, your favorite queer movie and TV podcast in hours two. I am your co-host TJ, the emotionally sophisticated, art-loving Pisces, and this is my co-host. I'm Aaron. The, oh, what do we want to say? I don't even know. I'm, he's an Aries. What can you do? You know, that's what I'm going to just say. Works for me. (laughs) (laughs) So what movie are we talking about this week, dear? Uh, What are we talking about? Oh, that's right. Uh, it's the cop movie. It is the cop movie. <laughs> this week we'll be talking about My Policeman. All right. So if you haven't heard of this movie, I don't know what planet you've been living on. It's been all over the news, in part because it stars Harry Styles. But it is a period drama, I think we can safely say, based mm-hmm. on a novel, the same name, about the character Tom, uh, the My Policeman of the title, who falls in love with Patrick, who is a museum curator. The wrinkle, of course, is that it's the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And the further wrinkle is that Tom decides to get married to Marion. And then flash forward into the present where Patrick has suffered a stroke. Marion volunteers to take him into their home where she's still living with Tom. And so they have to contend with the shadow of the past, shall we say, as they sort of reckon with what has transpired in their little menage a trois, <laughs> as we will call it. Mm, (laughs) So, obviously, this film has excited quite a lot of commentary, um, largely centered around the fact that Harry Styles, most famous at the moment for being a musician and former member of the boy band One Direction. But I think there's a lot going on in this film. I found it to be a very enjoyable film. I liked it a lot more, I think, than many of the critics did. It has a pretty low rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Hardly the most important barometer for how people feel, but still, it is kind of striking that a film that I can imagine in a previous decade getting like a 80% is now sitting at like what a 40% I think or something like that so I think it's worth sort of delving into why that might be the case and what did we like about the film that maybe some of the other critics are missing yeah and I think you actually just nailed it when you uh, said that you know if you were thinking about a movie from a couple of decades ago it would have a much higher rating I actually think that that's why Mm -hmm. this movie might have such a low rating now because my thoughts about it was that it was a perfectly fine movie but the entire time I was watching it I was wondering what ground it was covering in 2022 mm-hmm. because it feels very much like a movie that I could have seen from 25 or even 30 years ago right so do you want to elaborate on that a little bit uh sure uh, and so of course uh as tj already pointed out we've got this story you know set in the 50s of you know these two characters that basically are together but can't really be together because 50s <laughs> and so there's the complication of one of them marrying a woman and trying to spend his life third but still of course carrying on the relationship with the other man for all these years uh it's it's very broke back it is as mm-hmm. i put it it's like Brokeback met Morris. Yes. And had a baby. Exactly. And because we already have Morris and we already have Brokeback, it's like, well, what is this movie doing? And that's not a strike against a movie. As you've heard me say in this podcast many, many times before, I think it's great to have queer themed movies that are just movies. Not every queer movie has to be groundbreaking. It's okay to just have a movie be a movie. But that said, I feel like this movie is just sort of a movie. Okay. I mean, I agree with you insofar as, like, it does feel somewhat dated. And, I mean, I did kind of wondering, I was kind of wondering, like, why the, like, why do we still need stories about the closet? Like, do we not already know what the closet was like in the 1950s Mm -hmm. in the UK or anywhere? Like, but at the same time, like, I find it still very pleasurable to watch a film like this. If for no other reason that I think because... It does explore the closet, but it's much more interested in its characters. Like, it's much more of a character study than it is, like, a sociological study. Exactly. Like, you can't just sort of, like, switch in any other random queer folks and have the same story. Right. Because, you know, it's a good story. It's actually well-written, well-crafted. And so the characters themselves are interesting. You know, so like I said, it, it works as a movie, but it's just sort of a movie. Right. Well, thank you for joining us for Queens of the Bees. <laughs> oh, thanks. See you next week, folks. <laughs> no, but, you know, on a podcast that has given an hour to eating out, I think we can say there's lots that we have to say about mm-hmm. my policemen. So I want to start by talking a little bit about where I usually start out, which is, of course, with the casting, because I think that is so much of the conversation mm-hmm. around this film centers around most notably Harry Styles. He's been having a bit of a year 
for better or worse. Because he was also in Don't Worry Darling, which is a film more famous for what was said about it than for what the movie was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which I feel is somewhat true of Harry... I'm sorry, of... um, Well, yeah, Harry Styles. But also of this movie. Like, it's one of those cases where the star threatens to overshadow the thing that they're starring in. Mm-hmm. Which is itself a very fascinating phenomenon. Um, the film scholar in me, the star scholar in me is like, ooh, what an, <laughs> what an exciting moment. Um, but I have to say that I was surprised because I... I will admit that I was less than thrilled at the idea of seeing Harry Styles. I mean, I don't have anything against him. I find his music inoffensive. Some of his songs are quite nice. But for the most part, he's kind of, one might even say anodyne. Like, he's just, <laughs> it's an inside joke. Um, he's just kind of inoffensive. Like, there's he's very pretty, and he's very just there. But I, I was really kind of surprised by how well he did this role and how much I responded to this character because there's something not to wax poetic for a moment, but he is, there's something almost soulful about him. Like he has a kind of boyish good looks, but there's, you can sense there's a really profound soul behind those eyes. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, Tom is not necessarily the most complicated person, but he's a very rich person. Does it make sense what I'm saying? Like he's Mm -hmm. an emotionally rich character. And I think that styles actually does a pretty good job of bringing a lot of that out. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also think, and this is this is my own spin on some of the criticism, I think because Harry Styles has been around for a while now, um, and, you know, burst onto the scene while he was still a kid, I think some folks just don't recognize that he's actually just an adult. Right. At this point, he's actually just a fully grown man at this point. Right. I think sometimes, maybe, I think some folks are maybe struggling with that realization. It's true. And I mean, I do think that, like, you know, I, a lot of the criticisms that I was reading of this movie, you know, said that Styles didn't really bring out the kind of emotional complexity of the character of Tom. And I'm just like, did you watch the same the movie, movie that yeah. I did? Like, one gets the sense that Tom is a genuinely good person trying to make the best of a bad cultural situation. And mm-hmm. even a very, you know, personally fraught situation that he genuinely cares about Marion. Even he's he's desperately in love with Patrick. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I mean, I found Tom, as, you know, Harry Styles as Tom to be quite a, you know, compelling portrait of, you know, of, of a man of the 1950s who's, you know, a decent bloke, I guess, is the best mm-hmm. way. But, I mean, I think that's deliberate. Like, I mean, does... Is it the most emotionally, like, nuanced portrait? No, but I don't think that Tom is a particularly emotionally nuanced character. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know that we... It seems to me that this is one of those cases where critics are letting their own biases over-determine their interpretation of what's going on. And so this is my rousing defense of... Of Harry Styles, which I never in a thousand years dreamt that I would yeah. be making. And I mean, but don't critics always do what you just said that they do? Well, I try not to as a critic. Like I try to take films and characters on their own terms rather than over-determining things because of what I want them to be. But that's just me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think that one of the things that Styles does really well is just to make Tom into a person that we can appreciate and understand even if we don't always agree with his choices mm-hmm. now of course juxtaposed to him are both marion and patrick who are very different kinds of characters and very different kinds of actors so david dawson um who's been in a lot of things i think most people might recognize him from the last kingdom where he plays um the character of king alfred and is himself part of the lgbtq community according to his imdp page whatever that means <laughs> <laughs> but he really i think brings out the complexities of his own character of Patrick, who, you know, is the artiste, who is, you know, who look could have been transplanted, frankly, from Morris into yes. this movie. Like, he's like the Risley character, I think would be the closest analog. You know, something as the, of the esthete. You know, obviously he's the museum curator. He sketches. Mm-hmm. But he's also, you know, deeply and passionately in love with Tom. And I think that, that the two actors really kind of capture that quite eloquently. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a genuine chemistry to their performances that I think is really I that resonated with me and that I appreciated yep same here I, you know I thought uh, I thought that again we'll t- talk about the other actors that play this part in a minute because we get the younger versions of these characters and then we see them as older adults later on I thought the younger counterparts did a fantastic job 
in sort of establishing these characters and sort of laying your groundwork for the other actors who play those characters later in life. Uh, and let's do we want to talk a little bit about that now, <laughs> since we get for our three main characters older versions of them. Right, and in fact, they're the ones we meet first. Mm-hmm. Like, so when when we are in the present, we have. <laughs> Gina McKee, who is, you know, a well-known British actress playing Marion. Linus Roach, probably most famous to most American audiences for appearing as um, uh, ADA, ADA Cutter in um, Law and Order. Order. Yeah, and I thought he did a great job playing a British person yes, in, which... in this movie, right? What did you think? <laughs> yes, considering he is British. Wait, he's British? <laughs> he is British. Yeah, he is one of those other ones that all these years I had no idea. <laughs> I know, it's really weird. And then, of course... The other queer person in the cast, Rupert Everett, who plays the elder Patrick. Um, And, you know, I think that the three older versions of the characters do the best that they can with a rather admittedly limited narrative. And I think that kind of help us to understand the consequences of the past and how that echoes down through the present, to Mm -hmm. the present. Because is it ever explicitly stated when the present takes place? I don't believe so. So, I mean, it's kind of like nebulous. It's just sometime in the, uh, what, 90s, 2000s, I think. It must must be the 2000s because we see an openly gay couple, so Mm -hmm. I can't imagine that. And we can see their, like, modern-day cars. I think it's supposed to be set basically now. Right, so, so, you know, which, you know... Anyway, the, we don't need to get too far into that not quite making sense, because if it was in the 50s and this is supposed to be mm-hmm. now, like, exactly mm-hmm. how old are these characters? Yeah, but, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, I don't want to get too far afield. But I do think that, you know, these older versions of the characters, I think, capture quite nicely what the consequences of the action taking place in the late 50s has been. Mm-hmm. You know, we see Patrick obviously you know, has had a stroke and is almost nonverbal and is clearly quite dissatisfied with life, which as he would be, which we'll get to that, why that would be. Um, And we sort of can sense the long simmering scars from the fifties. And if I have to be honest, like I found the present story interesting enough, but not given nearly enough detail to mm-hmm. really land like it felt like two movies kind of pulling each other apart yeah so i feel like i would have maybe been more moved if they had just kept one or the other like mm-hmm. uh, or privileged one or the other yeah. rather than giving them it wasn't like the distribution wasn't didn't quite work out for yes. me like i feel like the narrative just didn't quite gel in the way that it should um which is to say again that i didn't enjoy the movie but if i had to make a complaint it would be that the screenplay was a little bit lopsided yeah yeah i think it trying to give sort of like relatively equal balance to the past and the present for you know within the world of the movie was maybe a misstep yeah <laughs> especially i mean like i said aside from the temporal not which only just occurred to me that it doesn't make sense for them being the present. They'd have to be like what in their eighties. It doesn't so, quite so make sense. Maybe it's supposed to be around 2000. I, guess. I would <laughs> imagine. So I can't make it make sense otherwise, but mm-hmm. be that as it may, I do think that this is one of those things that maybe worked better in the book, which I haven't read than it does on the screen. Mm-hmm. Cause like a novel can capture a little bit more, like you're not as temporally bound, like within mm-hmm. a two hour time frame. So, you know, and it doesn't help that, like, we have these moments where, um, where Marion is reading Patrick's journals. But, I mean, anyway, that's all of which is to say that there's just some narrative problems that don't always resolve. But I will say that, you know, in the present, I think that all three actors really do a really convincing job of showing us what these characters would have matured into as their lives go on. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit, because I think that Although I didn't cry at this movie, the one moment that did kind of break me was the ending, but we'll get to that a little mm-hmm. bit later on. So obviously the crux of the matter, you know, in the, the 50s, which is, I think, where the heart of the movie really is, um, although it tries to make it to be in both places, but the true heart of the movie is in the 1950s narrative, which is, what, 57, 58, give mm-hmm. or take? So, you know, that's when we're introduced to Patrick, or sorry, to Tom and Marion who strike up their quasi-relationship. Mm-hmm. And then Tom introduces Marion to Patrick at the museum. And then it flips and we actually find out that Tom and Patrick have actually been having an affair mm-hmm. for some time before this meeting at the museum. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's just like, it's one of those moments where like, I, helps me to understand Tom as a character. Like, he's not malicious in any way. He just seems so willfully naive. Like, yes. he is a very naive character, which that's what I think 
Styles does a really good job of capturing. Like, yeah. this really kind of boyish naivete mm-hmm. that is really sharply at odds with both Marion and Patrick, both yes. of whom are much more worldly and emotionally complicated than he is. Mm-hmm. And we see a similar thing, like, within in Mars, where you've got the two characters that strike up the relationship, and one is clearly more worldly than the other. You know, one sort of serves as the guide to the other character into this whole queer lifestyle type thing. Right, and in that sense, like, it seems to me that, like, not, I'm not sure that my policeman is directly in conversation with Morris, but it feels like it is, mm-hmm. both in terms of its aesthetic, in terms of its story. And it does seem to me that, like, in this instance, it's Tom, who is more like Morris, who is the one who goes, who sort of buys into the myth of heterosexuality to a mm-hmm. degree that Patrick refuses to do so. Yeah. Like, Tom even goes so far as to tell Patrick, like... I want children, and I, you know, mm-hmm. I want to be ma- I, like he genuinely seems to love Marion, even as he really truly has desire for Patrick. Yes. Like, and that's the kind of crux of the emotional problem that the, they face is that that's what makes it so tragic. Really, is mm-hmm. that you know they're all just characters trying to do the best they can. They're they're all good people in their own way, mm-hmm. though capable of doing bad things. Yeah. I mean, all three of them. Obviously, Tom is having an affair <laughs> with a with a man mm-hmm. knowingly when he gets mm-hmm. married to someone. Yep. Deeply morally questionable. Patrick is having an affair with a married man, mm-hmm. even after said man gets married. Yep. And then Marianne, who arguably does the worst thing of the three of them, which Aaron and I are about to have a vehement disagreement <laughs> on air. When she, because what happens narratively is that. Patrick is investigated for being, you know, a pervert. <laughs> a poof. <laughs> and is sentenced to two years in prison. And it turns out, which is no surprise, that Marion was the one who turned him in to mm-hmm. his... Who, who turned him in to his museum superior because she knew they were having an affair. And Tom had sent her a postcard from Italy when they were on a vacation... Like, when him and Patrick were on vacation. And she felt he was taunting, so she decided mm-hmm. to turn him in. All of which, of course, led to Patrick's imprisonment, which you can about imagine how well it would be to be a gay pers- a gay man mm. in a, pri- a British prison circa 1958. Like, it's, not great. Yeah, he got two years in a British prison. They probably served him tea every day. We actually don't. We know that's not the case. We actually see the scenes know, yeah. of violence. We actually get to see it in this case, which I thought was a nice choice for the movie to actually show some of that brutality. Right. Without, it shows it without fetishizing it mm-hmm. like it doesn't like it, it's given in like a, a sort of there's di- non-diegetic music playing over it while it happens like we don't have to like fixate on it but it doesn't shy away from it either and i think mm-hmm. that's a really smart choice yeah because it would be so easy to say like sometimes brokeback tends to veer on like gay torture porn a little bit mm-hmm. like i'm just using that as another intertext of like the closet and I think this film has a much more restrained approach to the subject, and I think mm-hmm. that's to its benefit. Mm, it's British. Right, it is British. <laughs> um, and so I think that that's really the the tragedy of the story, though, is that because Marion genuinely loved both Patrick and Tom in different ways, like, she definitely, I mean, she has the more, like, sophisticated bond with Patrick because mm-hmm. they have more in common. Like, exactly. she loves art, she loves the theater, music. Yeah. Tom does not. Yeah. And as I was saying, that's the thing that also complicates the story even more than what you said before when you talked about sort of what each of the characters sort of did, the, the sort of, quote, crime they committed despite being good people, is that not only, you know, was Marion sort of betrayed, you know, by her husband, who, of course, was having an affair, and that not only was Patrick a man having an affair with a married man, is that he was having an affair with a married man who was married to his friend. He was friends <laughs> with Marion. Right. And so it is, you know, it is one of those stories that resists easy moralizing. Like, I mean, for some people. I mean, mm-hmm. for me, who tends to moralize everything, that's not the case. <laughs> like, when I was, when I finished, I was like, that, how dare Marion do that? <laughs> Which, uh, but as someone who can be very spiteful, I think, I maybe I am projecting a bit too much. <laughs> maybe, yeah, just a tad. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'm, you know, deflecting a little bit of my own guilt over my own spiteful actions toward Marion. Um, but even so. But I mean, I do think that one thing that makes this film shine, and one thing I think it does very well, is to help us to identify and sympathize with these characters, mm-hmm. even as we don't always agree with what they're doing. Exactly, yeah. Um, and I mean, I said that earlier that it's like, 
Morris meets Brokeback, but I also think there's a little bit of atonement in here too, like mm-hmm. the movie Atonement, like if you've ever seen, mm-hmm. also is predicated on someone tattling and you know getting someone into trouble and ruining lives, basically. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that the film allows us to sort of appreciate what Marion is going through because she's given as much screen time and I feel and we're as audience members asked to affiliate with her yes. just as much as we are with Patrick. Mm-hmm. Cause I mean, it seems to me that like Tom is a character and, but we don't get a lot of viewpoint from him specifically. Like so mm-hmm. much of the story is about Marion and Patrick more than it is Tom per se. Mm-hmm. Like part of that is because Marion's actually reading Patrick's diaries in the present that gives us an understanding of what he's feeling in the past. Yeah. And obviously we sense what she's doing because we spend so much time with her as a character independently of Tom. We don't really get a lot of time with Tom as a character, like by himself no, without yes. the other two. Exactly. Which is really an interesting choice. I mean, obviously the story is my policeman, so it's by definition not from Tom's point of view. Exactly. Because Tom is the my policeman for both <laughs> Marion and Patrick. Right, and I mean... I think there's something quite, not, I, I wouldn't say lovely, but moving and evocative about that love triangle story. Like, I, I would agree with you that it's not necessarily doing anything new, but it's a pleasant watch for that. And it really asks you to sit with the moral quandaries mm-hmm. that it raises. And I think that's one of the things that yeah. it does particularly well. Yeah, I would say that if anything that's, that felt new for me, it's that it really does sort of focus on sort of how crappy this situation was for all three of the characters that it's a shame that you know they lived in a world where Tom and Patrick couldn't just be together right because you get the feeling that if if not for that societal fact none of the bad stuff would have happened in this right so i mean you know unlike so i i don't want to belabor this but it does seem to me that if we're looking at this as sort of in conversation with what's come before whether that's brokeback or morris which are so much more explicit about the the constraining nature of the closet mm-hmm. um, in their historical periods like the closet is still present in my policeman, but it's there only in sort of incidental moments. Like yeah. it's not like the smothering presence that it is in Morris or in Brokeback. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's there when we see uh, Patrick going to a basement bar mm-hmm. and then having a little fling with someone outside before they're interrupted by the police. It's there with you know the contempt with which the police clearly treat queer people. It's there in much more subtle ways, mm. subtle but pervasive ways yeah. than it is in either than either of the other two films, and in a similar way, like Marion is given much more of a sympathetic treatment than she is in either than the female characters are in either Brokeback or Morris. Mm-hmm. So if you look at something like Morris, where the female characters are at best like ciphers and at most very irritating yeah. and vapid, and clearly like you know Clive's wife is just. I, I don't even know how to describe her. Right. Just irritating. But Brokeback is pretty vicious with its female characters, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, certainly with the Anne Hathaway character mm-hmm. and even Michelle Williams who comes across being like... Because uh, they're framed as being interruptions or impediments it's to exactly, the queer yeah. romance. That's not to say that neither Hathaway or Williams give good performances because they do. But the film is not particularly friendly toward its female characters yeah and exactly and i think it's because brokeback does what i expect this kind of story to do because it's ultimately about sort of the the tortured romance between the two male characters the women have to sort of be obstacles to that because these we're talking about the wives of these two men right likewise in this case we've got marion in my policeman as the wife to one of the main characters therefore she's kind of has to be an impediment to that love story, but because she's a main character mm-hmm. rather than just a secondary character like in Brokeback. Uh, because Marion's a main character, she gets her own story right. <laughs> uh, that allows, I think, that makes it easier for audiences to sort of sympathize with her situation. Right, and it's also worth pointing out, like, Emma Corrin, who plays the young Marion, is most famous for recently playing Princess Diana in The Crown. So, you know, her star text is already to a certain degree like that kind of tortured unhappy unrequited mm-hmm. romantic figure tragic yeah. romantic figure which I think she does very well mm-hmm. like the young like Emma Corrin really nails that role yeah. and she does it very like there's a sensitivity and a soulfulness to her portrayal that I mm-hmm. think is really important and that's what keeps me from being like 
absolutely hating her mm-hmm. <laughs> for what she does to Patrick. Like, because yeah. yeah, there's no disguising that, like, she basically ruined Patrick's life. Which, to be fair, he probably kind of ruined her life, too. But there's a big difference between living in a loveless marriage and being sentenced to prison. I think. There's a material difference. Yeah, there's certainly things. a material difference. But then, just to be devil's advocate, because obviously I agree with you completely, but just to be devil's advocate, at least Patrick only got two years. <laughs> at least. Where he was literally beat the as shit a, out. As opposed to decades. <laughs> yes, but he she also didn't get the shit beat out of her by homophobes, so... Yeah. And also, the thing that I would actually point out that I think is... The point that I think is actually relevant is that as bad as it is that, you know, of course Patrick was, you know, sleeping with her husband all this time, Patrick didn't actually have a commitment to Marianne. Tom did. Right. <laughs> so if someone should have been punished... For that, it should have been Tom. Right. <laughs> not Patrick. Exactly. And I mean, there's a really potent moment when, you know, because Tom obviously can't continue being a policeman mm-hmm. in the aftermath of the scandal. Yeah. Because uh, his name is tarred by association mm-hmm. with Patrick. And, you know, it's very clear because obviously when they investigate Patrick, they, you know, find his diary. So it's very clear he's been having this affair with Tom, which, you know, is completely going to demolish his career because he can't be a policeman mm-hmm. and be, you know, queer. Just can't do it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he bur- he's burning his uniform and Marion is basically like, I need to know, do you love Patrick? And he says... I love you. And he doesn't answer the question because mm-hmm. it's so, and it's clear to her at least that yeah. that's the, like, she knows then, but she's willing to, to still stay with him because it's still better than nothing, I suppose, mm-hmm. which is a deeply tragic, yeah. like fate. Like, yeah. And that's why I meant like, I, I find this to be a really classically wrought tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I, as a melancholic soul, yeah. I, fi- I find that that, speaks to me <laughs> right and again i i like it because it it made me because again it's not new territory so while the movie's playing out i've got i've got time to think about what's happening because i'm not so riveted by the action that i'm seeing on screen and just trying to keep up and one of the things that it got me thinking about when i was thinking about well what would a marion do in this situation and i was like and i was thinking about your initial response to her character's action and i was just sort of thinking in response i'm like what could we reasonably expect a woman in the 50s mm. to know to do about having a gay husband? Like, what's actually fair? Like, what's actually fair to expect right. from a person in that situation? And sitting through this movie, I realized that I actually I couldn't answer that question. Whereas I think if you had asked me that question after watching Brokeback, mm-hmm. you know, what you could you expect a wife to do, I might have given an answer that was like, well, she could she could forgive, she could overlook, she could do all these things besides report the guy that, you know, that her husband's sleeping with or whatever. But I was like, but let's be real now. <laughs> Again, thinking about what a person like that would have understood, what would have seemed like a reasonable alternative? Mm-hmm. Because I can't help but think about that question for being a person who's not just a gay man myself, but as someone who was born in 79. Right. And who came of age at a time that was more like the present day for my policeman as opposed to the past. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I would have expected a wife to do. Right. In that situation. Like, (laughs) yeah. And you're saying that reminds me of the conversation and the disagreement we had during Rocket Man when Mm -hmm. we were talking about Relton's mother's kind of caustic, curt response. Yeah. Because I do think that one of the things that my policeman is kind of asking us to sit with is like the limited horizon of expectations of what we want people to do mm-hmm. within specific historical moments. Like, yeah. And, but I mean, the counterbalance that there is that moment when her best friend is like, you know, I'm a lesbian, right? Mm-hmm. And then she's like, well, oh my God. You're right. So, but it's, as you say, it's complicated because it's complicated, not just by the historical circumstances, but obviously by feelings. Cause it is deeply, you know, Difficult to deal with your the fact of your husband having an affair with your best friend mm-hmm. or your best male friend anyway. Yeah. So you're right that it is very very fraught mm-hmm. emotionally, and there are no easy answers as much as we might wish it were otherwise. Exactly. And I love that this movie let that play out. Mm-hmm. It let it play out as just a difficult situation for all of the characters. Right. And I mean, I like that in the present when you know Marion confesses to Tom who. 
we in the audience, I think, knew from the beginning that she was the one who turned him in. Like, that's not yeah, a revelation we were not, to us. Like, yeah, it was a revelation in the movie, but we were like, well, duh, obviously. Right. Which I'm not, I mean, I think the, I think maybe the screenplay wanted it to be a revelation to us, but I was like, obviously. Yeah. Like, it was as clear, as soon as, like, Tom sent that postcard, we were like, okay. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, the, and the fact that it was so not a surprise is what, for me, made even the device of having her read the diaries in the present day yeah. feel so weird because I'm like, clearly she already knows well, yeah, exactly. all of this stuff. Right, <laughs> like, I mean, because, you know, there's that moment when she sees them, like, being intimate on their honeymoon. Mm-hmm. And so that, that led me to be like, okay, so why is she reading the, like, what's the it, point of her reading the diaries if it's not actually a revelation? Because yeah, it's it's more just confirming what she already knows, which I guess there can be some power right. to that. But cinematically, that doesn't work so well. Right, exactly. I mean, it's it thwarts our expectations of what usually reading journals in cinema means. Like, it's a revelation. Like, you're learning yeah. something new. Whereas in this case, I think its primary function is just to tell us, like, what Patrick is thinking. And to, exactly. to introduce Patrick's voiceover. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know... Whether or not it was intended to sort of land as a bombshell to us in the audience, it clearly lands it with Tom because yes. you know he looks absolutely devastated by this revelation. Mm-hmm. Um, and to Marion's credit, it's clear that she's been miserable for these whatever they are 40, 30, 30 mm-hmm. 40 years. Right. She's like, she says, you know, when my reti- I envisioned my retirement going to museums and stuff, but to some degree, I was like you knew that Tom didn't like those things, so I don't know why you thought things would be different. But this is the thing. That that seems to be the point that this film is articulating, is that people will delude themselves into believing all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. You know, and that that's our tragedy as people, is that we will often convince ourselves that the reality is different than it is. Like, mm-hmm. And that we will lie to ourselves and we will make ourselves believe things that are otherwise. So yeah. say what you and, will. And to be fair, it's not just that she lies to herself, that he explicitly lies about those things. Remember, there's that whole thing they work in there about the idea that a man should always be trying to approve himself. Mm-hmm. That Tom says that he got from Patrick. <laughs> and that's what got Tom to start feigning an interest in those things. Because right. turns out he was actually just trying to get with Patrick, but that became a device that he used to talk about his own feigning interest in those things. So again, it's like, I can't even say that I blame Marion for even, say, like, deluding herself when he's saying that he wants to do these kinds right. of things. And I mean, the, of the three characters, the only one that seems, like, genuinely honest with himself is Patrick. Yeah. Honest with himself and honest with Tom. Like, mm-hmm. he asks Tom repeatedly, do you want me to stop? And he's like, no, not really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, like, you know, the because it's clear, and the film makes very obvious, that Patrick and Tom share not just an emotional bond that is much more authentic and real, but they also, because sh- we see, for example, that moment when they go to Italy, because when you're gay in a period piece, Italy's always where you go mm-hmm. to, to be gay. Right. <laughs> Which is weird, because... I don't know a lot about Italy in the post-war period, but I'm guessing it wasn't that libertine. But anyway, it works cinematically, right? Mm-hmm. We get to see the sun-drenched canals of Venice and, mm-hmm. and Patrick and and Tom racing through the streets and making out and scandalizing nuns and all this stuff. It's very beautiful and very, like, you know, very Merchant Ivory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Take it back to Morris. It reminds me of my youth. Yes, well, <laughs> some of us weren't that fortunate. But anyway... And we also, like, get some very potent sex scenes. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, was quite... I mean, I'll be honest. Gay sex is hot. Whether it's in porn or whether it's in, you know, cinema. <laughs> it's hot. And I think that this film is very sensual in a, in a very good way. And I thought those sex scenes were quite staged, well-staged and intimate. I think they could have been far more explicit. I was a little disappointed to not see more. <laughs> yes, well, I mean, we weren't going to see any wieners, unfortunately. Um, well, not just that, dear. <laughs> what did you want to see then? Just more, you know, it's like I was hoping for just actual sex in this, mainly because Harry Styles is just very pretty. <laughs> well, I mean, we we get to see them have a flip-fuck, so that's, you know, pretty intense. Yeah, well, it's not explicit. This isn't porn. <laughs> I think we've switched roles here. It's like I'm saying the things that normally you would be saying. <laughs> well, that's true. But I mean, I do. I did appreciate the way this film had some lovely gay intimacy. Mm-hmm. Like it's because it, it's not just sex; it's actual intimacy. Yeah, and I think that's. And I mean, part of the reason Styles raised a few eyebrows and some ire from gay fans was his sort of overstatement about what gay intimacy and gay sex looks like in the movies. 
But I actually think that this film does a really good job of showing how tender but passionate gay sex can be. Mm-hmm. And not every film can accomplish that, but this one I think did actually a pretty good job yeah. of doing so. And I think it did so because it it did a good job of allowing moments of sex to actually feel romantic and tender, but also showing tenderness and romance outside of sexual encounters. Because I think that I think that's frankly cinematically that's sort of the easy way to do it. Mm-hmm. Is like you just have moments like they've got that sort of bookended in the movies where there are these moments where Tom is just sort of lightly touching at Patrick's neck, kind of like messing with his collar and things like that, and that's a very intimate moment just to sort of show those little moments of touch, mm-hmm. but not at all explicit. Right. But that's the kind of thing that a movie like this can really do to highlight the connection between those characters. Right. And I mean, that's why, you know, texture and touch and sense are so important to a movie like this, where it really helps bring out how much the emotion is kind of seething under the surface mm-hmm. and like just ready. Cause I mean, it's Tom who initiates it mm-hmm. and like le- reaches out. And as you said, like touches Patrick's neck mm-hmm. and then the, you know, fellatio ensues. Right. But it's interesting that cause Tom tries to deflect and say that you seduced me and Patrick's like, Oh no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Like you're not going to play that He's game like, with me. You started this. He's like, you're not going to play this rough game, rough trade game with me. It's like you initiated it. And that's how this started. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I appreciate too that like it shows the way that gay and in- like intimate moments can often be as difficult as they are f- lovely. Like there's mm-hmm. that one moment where like Tom's like, don't ruin it. Cause you know, you, Patrick in typical like gay fashion wants to talk about, mm-hmm. about their problem after, after sex. And Tom's just like, please just let me like, let's just enjoy this. Mm-hmm. And then you see Patrick pleading with Tom to stay just a few more minutes. Like right. it's quite poignant and quite, you know, it really helps capture how complicated sex can be. Even, yeah. even aside from all the other kind of personal and social drama that's going on outside, like those are the kind of moments that help this film to read as emotionally authentic yeah. in a way that, quite frankly, caught me by surprise. Like, I did not expect me to be so caught up in this movie mm-hmm. as I was. So, obviously, like I said, the gay sex is hot, and I give credit to Styles and, and Dawson to, to ha- for doing such good job bringing out the physical chemistry. Um, and then, of course, you know, we flash forward many times to the present. And although the present storylines don't have quite as much weight... I think that the actors do the best they can with those roles. And I'm thinking in particular of Linus Roach, who is not the most emotionally demonstrative of actors. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, and he's, and Tom is not. Like, you can see the way that Tom is kind of calcified mm-hmm. as he's gotten older. But of course, what else would you expect yeah, for someone exactly. trapped in a loveless marriage? Exactly. Like, he spends, it's, I wish, I, I wish the film had maybe given this, made this a little more explicit, but it is clear nevertheless that Marion and Tom are just passively miserable. Like, mm-hmm. it's not kind of like the scream and shout at each other kind of miserable. It's just the, the misery of two people who have nothing in common but have been together for 50 years or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Like, Tom spends most of his time walking on the beach with the dog and Marion's trying to take care of Patrick. She's trying to sort of, like, make amends for what she mm-hmm. enabled. and But neither of them are willing to sort of speak about the actual thing until the very end where she's like, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to sit here and take care yeah. of Patrick. And he's like, well, you brought him here. And she's like, yeah, but like, we're not in love anymore. Exactly. And we never were really. Yeah. And to be clear, I don't think that she's even just sort of, she's not just making amends. Like she brings Patrick to that house to put Patrick together with Tom. Right. Like, it's not just, I feel bad because several decades ago I got you sent up the river. <laughs> like, and so, and now you're sick and you need someone to look after you, so I'll do that. It isn't just that. Right. She very clearly wants the two of them to finally fucking acknowledge <laughs> what's been going on because that's her way out. Because she uses that as her way to finally acknowledge the thing that Tom will not say. Is that that marriage just couldn't work. And so she's like, you know what? Instead of continuing, she's like, I'm not going to die <laughs> going through this marriage without acknowledging this. Right. I want to have at least some time in my life where I'm actually living authentically. And she goes, but you might as well have that too. <laughs> so I'm going to put you in the same house with this man that you obviously love. And you're just going to have to deal with that. 
Right. And I mean, because the thing is, the, the ugly, brutal truth is that Tom and Patrick could have made their differences. They could have made their relationship work despite the differences because they truly loved each other. Mm-hmm. Marion and Tom have never been able to do that because they don't truly love each other. Mm-hmm. And like the, it lack, their engagements and interactions lack the physical dynamic and the chemistry and the dynamism mm-hmm. that Patrick and Tom so clearly share. Yeah. And it's because Tom insisted on this, that he insisted on following the script Mm-hmm. That they are spent so miserable, mm-hmm. and it's, and it's a really cautionary tale that just following the script, just because it's the script, is not yeah. a prescription for happiness. Mm-hmm. Like in fact, it can lead to exactly the opposite, yep. as we find out. And I mean, it's to Marion's credit, as you say, that she is willing to bring Patrick back into their lives precisely because that's the only thing that can make them happy. And I'd say that Rupert Everett is really leaning into the crotchety old man role, <laughs> like you know. That's kind of, everything I've seen him in recently is he's playing that kind of person, which, you know, for the kind of sex symbol that he was is an interesting choice. Like, he's mm-hmm. still a very attractive man. There is something, you know, I do think he captures the bitterness of Patrick quite mm-hmm. well. And, like, the, the sense that Patrick is fading. Like, Marion says he's going to die mm-hmm. unless... But I think he can rally if you're willing to do this. Like, exactly. if you're willing to, like, give him a reason to live, then I think he can pull through this. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like I said... I didn't find this. I didn't find myself weeping, but I will say the moment that caught me was the one of the last frames we get, which is of Tom finally going to a wheelchair bound Patrick and putting his hand on like his shoulder mm-hmm. and caressing his neck, yeah. which is lovingly shot. It's obviously evocative of the moment when they first consummated their desire for each other, mm-hmm. and then you see Patrick reach up and clap, and it's just it's. It's really well well done, well yeah. executed. There's I I didn't like it. Though. Oh, of course you didn't. And I and I didn't like it because they did one thing that ruined. Oh, it. they made they made they flashed the image of the young. Yes, Tom. they flash you know because they have you know uh, Linus Roach and uh, Rupert Everett playing these parts as the older characters, and then after there is this moment of contact, and it cuts to a shot of Rupert Everett in his wheelchair with Harry Styles as young Tom. Yeah. For one moment in that sort of moment of quasi-embrace before it then cuts back to it being with uh, Linus Roach playing the older counterpart to that character. And I just felt like that was, it was too cheesy for me. Like that totally took me out of the moment. Would it have been better if it had, they'd also made the younger Patrick? I think they just should have just stuck with them as the older character. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm just a, a sucker for sentiment. Maybe that's what this comes down yeah, to. Yeah, for me, it just it was just far too sappy the way they did it. Did, did you want to call the Schmaltz police? Yes, I did. In fact, want to call the Schmaltz police. It's a, it's a Golden Girls reference, in case you didn't know. So I want to two more things I wanted to talk about before we kind of start wrapping up. One is the really potent scene. Like I said, there's not much for Linus Roach to do, or of Rupert Everett for that matter. But because I mean, it's clear that like Gina or uh, the Marion gets the lion's share of the mm. the mm. good scenes in the present. But there is that moment when, you know, when Marion and older Tom are both visiting a shop and he sees a gay couple living mm-hmm. their life openly. Uh, not only a gay couple, an interracial gay couple. <laughs> in Brighton, which is not exactly like an urban center for mm-hmm. for the UK. Uh, my, <laughs> our pardon to any of the Brighton fans. I'm like, pass the smelling salts, an interracial gay couple. <laughs> but the point is, is that it, cause he, it hits him because he realizes that that's the life he never got to lead. And so, you know, mm-hmm. you see him break down in the car. Like, he can't stand to see it. And he goes out and sits in his car and cries. Like, mm-hmm. and I mean, for me, I have that moment a lot in gay movies. Because, you know, when I, like, you know, when we talk about Heartstopper, for example, mm-hmm. like, I think that's something that a lot of us of a certain age can, that's a, a response that we can recognize. Not, mm-hmm. not anger or, but a sort of envy. Like, yeah. Yeah. And an envy and a, and a grief for a life that we didn't get to lead. And mm-hmm. that's, to me, a really powerful moment. And it's to Roach's credit that he really kind of gives us that, one of the few moments of present Tom where we see him have actual feelings. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was really well done. And of course, it's when he's alone and he does everything in his power to hide it before he is joined again. <laughs> right, I mean, it's like, God, Tom, just... Just say how you feel. It's not that hard. No. <laughs> and like he's a man and British. Of course he's not going to say how he feels. <laughs> yes, indeed. And then the other thing, you know, obviously since Patrick works in a museum and, you know, the the whole lead-in for the the romance between him and Tom is that he's sketching Tom. Like, and, you know, obviously he's an artiste. And I, and I you know, when we started this podcast two years ago, 
uh, almost exactly two years ago, in fact. You know, one of the things Mark and I, my co-host at the time, talked about was in Shelter, you know, where, like, art and queerness go together. Like, which is true. I mean, like, I think. I mean, cinematically speaking. Gay people are always artists in the cinema. Um, And so I, I appreciated, though, that, you know, in the world of this movie... Queer desire leads to pretty good art, mm-hmm. and I like that. You know, I think that there's it helps to really, excuse me, solidify the sense that queerness is beautiful, mm-hmm. and I and I, I think that's a message that's worth celebrating. Right. So I mean, all in all, I felt like that this was actually a much better film than I had been expecting. This is part of the reason I tend to disregard critics because I don't think they know what they're talking about, um, and so I just really enjoyed this movie. Like I found it to be a very pleasurable viewing experience. Not maybe... And surprisingly profound. That's that's what I think surprised me the most mm-hmm. was the extent to which it was much more emotionally rich than I had expe- and than I had been led to believe it would be. Yeah. And so I think that's to its credit. So if you... And, you know, as we said with bros, I do think that there's still something valuable for queer audiences to support queer movies, even if they're not groundbreaking, even if they fit into the molds of movies that we've seen before. Like, straight people get that all the time. Like, mm-hmm. every straight movie follows a similar script. Like, why is it such a crime for our movies to, to do the same thing that queer, like straight movies do? Mm-hmm. And so, if you have the chance, watch this. It's streaming on Amazon Prime, which is really nice to be able to see it on streaming. So I would definitely recommend going to see it and watch it, or watching it at home, regardless. You know, we need to, supp- we need to show the powers that be that it's worth doing. Mm-hmm. So give us a, just a moment, and we'll be right back. Okay, so now comes our favorite part of the show, and we know it's yours, too. Um, are you even gay? So for next week, we're going to be doing Interview with a Vampire, right? Right. So I'm looking at your DVD collection here. You've got them all on the shelf here. So I'm looking for your copy of Interview with a Vampire, and I'm not seeing it. Where is it? Well, you know, despite the fact it's one of the most influential texts in my development as a queer person, I have to admit something embarrassing to you that I don't actually own a physical copy of this movie. Okay, 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 so I I can handle that. Uh, So what you're saying is that you had a copy at some point and it just got lost, separated from the rest of your DVDs? Well, I mean, I may have at some point in the past, but not in like the last, I don't know, Ten years or so, probably. So, so, so you're not even sure that is correct. that you actually owned a copy of the great masterwork that is Interview with the Vampire. Unfortunately, yes, that is that is correct. I I could not tell you the last time I actually owned a copy of Interview with the Vampire. Wait, wait, wait. I'm not even because you keep saying this. I'm not sure that you ever did. I mean, I'm not sure either. That's the problem. Uh huh. So he. So why don't you just admit it, dear? <laughs> uh, I mean, I honestly don't know what I. Can, mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I. Believe me, no one is as horrified by this revelation I, as I, I am. I, 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 how did I not know this? Well, I will admit that when I was prep, doing the prep work for next week's episode, I was like, "Well, I know I have a copy of Interview somewhere. I mean, I have the book. I mean, I know. Uh, let me be clear. I have a copy of the book. I, mm-hmm. I, I, that is, that is true. I have a copy of it. I, I, I will." Take a picture of it, post it on our Instagram if necessary. Mm, yeah, I, I, audience, you need to hold him to this. But as I was looking through my DVD collection, I could not find my copy. If he I keeps, ever... He keeps saying he couldn't find his copy. All right, I didn't own it, okay? <laughs> I don't own it. I couldn't tell you the last time I owned a copy of Interview with the Vampire. There, are you happy now? Yes. Isn't it, doesn't it feel good to admit the truth? No, actually, it doesn't. It was quite devastating for me to realize that I did not have a physical copy of the interview on either DVD or Blu-ray. Yeah. Well, I love you anyway, babe. But I do have to ask you a very important question. Uh, I, feel like I've, I feel like I've had this coming for a while. I've got to ask you. Are you even gay? Well, to answer that... <laughs> okay, so there's a short answer and a long answer. The short answer is yes. The long answer is that you will find out next week when we go on at length about Interview with a Vampire, we will find out just how gay I am. Yeah, that's but, true. but I am deeply ashamed that I don't have a copy of this movie for a number of reasons, not the least of which, that having an actual physical copy of something is sort of talismanic 
oh, what is wrong with me? Why do I use words like this? <laughs> I, 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 I. <laughs> but anyway, there is something <sighs> talismanic, to repeat what I just said, mm. about having a physical copy of something that's so important to me that I need to rectify very quickly. I'm very ashamed that I don't have a, co- a physical copy of Interview with a Vampire. Mm-hmm. But it's also worth pointing out that, like, this is why physical copies are important in this day and age. Like, I know everyone wants to stream everything, but sometimes it's nice to have your own physical copy so you don't have to ask for it from the library. Mm -hmm. But yes, I am gay. Our audience will be happy to know that I am still as gay as I've ever been. I'll vouch for him. In case my my fae voice didn't give that away. So anyway, so for once, Aaron got to harass me about whether whether I'm even gay or not. So... I'm okay. (laughs) So we'll be right back to do our little exit segment. Well, thank you everyone for joining us for another fabulous episode of Queens the Bees. I think that, you know, as always, we delivered a knockout discussion of my policeman. So we want to thank you all for sitting with us for that one. So, I'm not even going to bother asking Aaron where we can find him on social media, because I know the answer is nowhere, because he doesn't really do social media, because he's Gen X, and blah, 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 you know, the same old litany that we get every week. Who needs to see pictures of my food? I post things like pictures of, not food, but <laughs> myself, and books that I've read, and movies that I've seen. It's fun to display yourself for all to see. Yeah. I'll pass. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, if you would like to follow me on social media, you can follow me on Instagram at Thomas West and the number three. You can also follow me on Twitter um, until it becomes the unutterable hellscape that it is almost certain to be under the Elon Musk. Become. <laughs> even more so under the Elon Musk dictatorship. You can follow me on Twitter at TJ West and the number three. And then... <laughs> I finally launched our Instagram account for the Queens of the Bees podcast. It's at Queens of the Bees, or as it spells out, Queens of the BS. Seems to work well either way. Um, And if you haven't followed us on there, you will be happy to know that we post a lot of little bite-sized reviews, both of the things we've been talking about here on the pod, but also of other assorted things that we're watching or reading that are not immediately going to be covered because we can't be recording all the time yet. (laughs) <laughs> so we do give some sort of bite-sized reviews on there and the occasional selfie of course because you know i'm an attention-seeking narcissist so <laughs> you can find all of our stuff there and if you would like to see some of the things that i have written you can also subscribe to my newsletter over at Substack. it's called omnivorous where i do write about gay things i will be probably writing about my policeman at some point i've written about the various episodes of interview with the vampire just all sorts of gay shit. So go over there and read it. Subscribe, please. We always need more subscribers over there as well. And, which leads me to the final thing, if you have a moment, please be sure to rate or review us wherever you get your podcasts, in particular Apple, as I'm sure that you are no doubt tired of hearing by this point, but I will reiterate, because it's worth reiterating, that ratings and reviews really do help build the viewership for a little, po- or listenership for a little podcast like ours. So please give us a little rating if you have a chance. We would prefer five, maybe four stars. If you, We will accept other lesser stars if you feel the absolute need, but we prefer the higher ones. Speaking of which, if you want to give us positive feedback, you can address it to me. Aaron will take the more critical stuff. He can, he can take it. I, being a more delicate disposition, cannot. Um, oh, yeah, I'm tough. <laughs> so please do that because it really does help us. And we're still, you know, a little podcast like ours with a small viewership, but we would like to continue to grow. So please do that if you have a chance. So I think that's all we have for this week. I know I've, you know, been quite effusive as usual. So for Queens of the Bees, I'm your co-host TJ. And I'm Aaron. And we'll be right back with you next week. Beep, beep.